would you like to know? Well, you should listen. Zoom. Cron. Week in review. Listen closely. Zoom. Cron. It's gonna help you. Then think for yourself. What the hell happens? I'm gonna tell you. From my in perspective. In the Zoom Cron. In Zoom Cron. Week, week in, in review. review. Right now. Here's an independent journalist, Travis. William, William Skink Matier. Hello and welcome to another edition of Zoomcron Week in Review. I'm your host, Travis William Skink Matier, sitting here on a Friday morning. As one of the posts, if you've already read it, indicates, doors can slam loudly here in my studio, but I'm going to persevere anyways because so, 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 so much to talk about. Um, I'm going to do things a little bit differently this week and go in reverse order. So I'm going to reverse time. Um, perhaps it's just part of my own personal desire that I had that ability to reverse time, you know, change a few things, fix a few mistakes that I made in hindsight. But alas, uh, I do not possess that power. Although I watch The Watchmen, that was a great series. Um, and that's going to be part of what we're talking about today. But first off, I'm tired. And I'm tired because I was up until about, let's see, 3 o'clock in the morning, unexpectedly watching some video footage. The title of the post that I put out in sort of a ASAP manner this morning is titled, The Standoff for the Mineral County Sheriff's Office Realized They Fucked Up Big Time, So They Backed Off For Now. There was a dot, dot, dot there. That was the, the pregnant pause, if you heard it. You didn't hear it because it was a pause. So crazy, crazy stuff. There's three videos that I put out um, today, this morning. Um, pretty intense stuff. Not entirely sure what the man's name is, but I do know that Wayne Cashman, uh, the undersheriff for Mineral County, was one of the talky-talky sheriffs. Um, I think he came later. That was after the first um, two men with guns pointed at this man. That's kind of how the video starts off is uh, two law enforcement officers in Mineral County with firearms pointed at this guy. And this man uses his mouth effectively with both of his hands visible the entire time. And I mean, in the first video, it's sort of light out and then it gets darker as the second video goes on. You got about an hour of footage to go through. You know, a lot of it is repetitive because the man is asking over and over, um, can you articulate a crime that you are investigating? And they just keep on trying to get the man out of the car. And he's like, no, you got guns on me. Uh, I think you're going to kill me. Um, the, the guy has no fear of death. Uh, is he suicidal? Well, you know, not to get into too many details myself, but having uh, really gone through some extreme uh, sort of mental health issues very recently and being very public in conversations about some of my own challenges, as is my friend, Tony, who is now um, commenting at zoomcron.com. That's Z-O-O-M-C-H-R-O-N, as in Nancy. Um, Tony's commenting now under his real name. He's also stirring all of my big bang bangs. Um, I signed over possession temporarily of uh, all my big bang bangs because everything in Zoomtown just seems to be heating up. 
So I would definitely check out the video footage. Um, I reached out to a family member since one of the, if I had to criticize or not criticize, but reflect upon all of the stuff that was said by this individual who uh, videotaped his interaction with Mineral County Sheriff's Office, including them backing off at the very end and leaving him be. If I had to say one, one challenge that, that he made for his family is that he did put a phone number out. And so I'm not going to make that phone number easy to find. It, I mean, you have to listen to all the footage to get to the phone number. But I reached out to a family member. The family member did not trust me as a member of media. I encouraged him to not trust me until he could better verify who the fuck I am. So I think I got through in terms of the fact that I'm not your regular journalist because regular journalists here in Missoula fucking suck. Uh, they're not telling the story of organized criminal elements long infiltrated our homeless community um, and now proliferating across our state um, doing human trafficking doing drug trafficking they're pretty closely related uh, we have chinese nationals being arrested the man in the video he kind of refers to the kind of he explicitly refers to the mineral county sheriff's office deputies as chinese assets he uses that term over and over again i am at this point of not disagreeing with that assessment I'm taking a sip of coffee. So that is an ongoing situation. Um, the man in this video is at a undisclosed location. Um, and I definitely encouraged the family member to not tell me that that location. This guy needs to stay safe. He thinks he's being hunted. Um, more on that, hopefully, at a later time. Going on, moving backwards, OMG, OMG, housing providers have rules. Did, did you guys know this? I did because I worked seven years at the Pavarello Center. And so I went to things like the At-Risk Housing Coalition where a bunch of service providers sit around drinking coffee, like I'm doing now, except I'm by myself talking to a microphone. Um, but we would talk about things like rules and policies and all that fun stuff. Like, hey, you can't have your palsies, your homeless palsies over for more than like three days. They definitely can't sleep overnight, you know, maybe two weeks if you get it cleared. Um, bada, 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 jump through this hoop, jump through that hoop, rules. Guess what? Some people don't like following rules. Oftentimes, if it's like a persistent pathological, not wanting to follow the fucking rules kind of thing, it can lead to not living in conventional housing. Since conventional housing, they make you follow rules. I use myself as an example, as I often do, and explain that when you sign a commercial lease and then things that are happening uh, from the outside perception of the, the big guy that owns the building and runs the business in the building when he thinks that maybe you aren't doing things that are in alliance or uh, in alignment with the lease. Well, you know what? Shit happens. So I use myself as an example since I have been facing my own housing insecurity after leaving my house where my kids live um, in a process of divorce that is absolutely crippling. Of course, I had to add another not good relationship on top of um, this 25-year relationship that's ending so I could just really feel the visceral pain of being a not good partner uh, to, a, to another half. So um, speaking of, of a partner, there's a picture of Tina and she's sad. So you should go and check out the picture of Tina. This picture is one of the most fucking frustrating pictures that the Missoulian has ever put out because this picture of sad Tina um, and then the, the language that uh, I think it was David Erickson. I think that was the fucking reporter doing this article back in 2017. Uh, the language of poor, sad Tina and Steve, who even though they were warned over and over again, the cleanup out at Reserve Street was happening that day. Well, they were sad and they were doing their drugs and not wanting to leave. But they fucking had to. 
um, again, rules, you know, in society and, and, and stuff. We have to follow them. So um, there's a, a picture of Satina, and then it made also the Clark Fork Coalition, a nonprofit that used to help in this area do the cleanups more, more actively. Well, they got sad and scared of the publicity being not all that great, and so they stopped collaborating. This was the year... Um, this cleanup was the year after I left my job at, in 2016. So the fact I had spent years putting together this collaborative relationships with like the health department, the Clark Ford coalition to see that squandered with a fucking picture. Can you imagine that that adds a little bit of frustration? Yeah. I'm going to sip coffee because this, this is, this is my, this is my anger juice. Um, that's a alternative to wine, which was my sad juice. Um, fuck you, Boda Box Wine. Don't need your shit anymore. Three years. Holla at me. Okay. Continuing. Let's see. Anything else in that post I want to hit up on? No. Let's just go backwards in time to August 10th. What the hell are we paying for? Now, there's a picture of a building that this post starts off with, and there's a beautiful mural. If there's one thing that, that we do good in, in Missoula, it's public art, like in alleyways, and there's murals all over the place, and they're beautiful when they're not totally graffitied over um, by spray paint bullshit. But this building, it's important to know this building houses people that work, and they're not going to be working there come September because the building um, it used to make some pills, like nutritional supplement stuff, and the company got bought by a bigger company. So that, that happens a lot. Think ATG in Missoula getting sucked up by Cognizant, I think uh, Logjam presents uh, signing some big deal with Live Nation. Yeah, that's right. Astro World Travis Scott Live Nation. So things just get funner and funner in places like Zoomtown. Uh, but not for these people that aren't working anymore because they got fired. So they got their notices. The cool thing is, though, this business got $170,000. Yeah, to create 25 jobs. I made some public comment at the county commissioners, and I forget you can actually have like a back and forth at the county commissioners um, making public comment, which is different than city council. They definitely don't respond to you unless they're saying point of order at city council, which also I think we're going to have to get to at some point today. Um, but uh, Josh Slotnick, helpfully, he's one of our county commissioners, pointed out that this $170,000 was like a state, I think it was the tobacco money. So it was an award. It wasn't something that Josh said, they said, you're the best corporation ever. Um, clearly understood, Mr. Slotnick. So thanks for that, that clarification. But um, I still think it's kind of fucking insane that we literally give money to a business to create jobs. And then, well, those jobs can just go away when there's you know, bigger money to be made for the bigger corporation. So that's kind of bullshit. But don't worry, Grant Keir, he's disappointed. So Grant Keir, he's the head of the Missoula Economic Partnership that just got $100,000 from city council, despite Daniel Carlino's attempts to shave that down to 50. Uh, I wish we would have known about this disappointing situation to Grant Keir before that conversation happened at city council, because, you know, someone would have made a point in public comment well, if I, if I was able to attend, I, someone would have made a point, and that someone is me. That's right. Uh, I also wanted to point out in this post that we do have a sheriff. I've really never seen him out in public. Um, I don't know if he's in hiding or what really is going on with uh, Sheriff Jeremiah Peterson, but um, I'm curious, since he did used to run the jail before running unopposed and becoming sheriff last November, why Harley Glover had a backpack and the jail run by the sheriff's office, well, they didn't want any part of that backpack. So the city cop had to 
spend extra time. You know, city cops are very busy because they're dealing within the city limits, a bunch of bullshit, whereas the sheriff deputies, back when they were doing uh, reality TV with, like, live PD, they would, like, drive around playing uh, with, like, women that were looking at owls. Like, seriously, that's the shit they were doing. So <clears throat> Harley Glover, who I know pretty well, and I put some connections out there since his brother's John Skinner. His brother likes to sell meth, which I've directly seen and talked to John about. Um, then I talked to law enforcement about that, but Rico didn't think John was uh, all that big, big time, even though John did tell me he was getting supplied with meth from outside of the state. Go fucking figure. But um, we got KGVO telling us would not accept the backpack. So this is a quote from the KGVO article. The officer transported Glover to the Missoula County Detention Facility, which, in emphasis, mine, would not accept the backpack. The officer then took Glover's backpack to the Missoula Police Department and conducted an inventory search. Wowzers. Um, and confusing. So, uh, Harley and John, so John Skinner and Harley Glover, their mommy is Mama Cat Glover. Mama Cat Glover is looking like absolute shit. Don't do drugs, kids. Um, man. Mama Cat, you're looking bad. Uh, I talked to Mama Cat because she was living at Lions Park before Lions Park was cleared. And it's all just a big old messy shit show, isn't it? Um, also wanted to touch on the problem currently being blamed in the most recent quote by our mayor for the new taxes that are going to be coming. Inflation. Okay, it's because inflation. Um, aggressive cost inflation. That's a direct quote from placeholder Mayor Hess, who wants to be our mayor again. Okay, let's see, going on, oh yeah, okay, do we need another reminder that angry words are not the same as actual physical violence? So I made a documentary about tax increment financing because in Missoula there was an uprising in 2019 when a uh, local music guy and the owner of Logjam Presents, who I just referenced as having signed a big deal with Live Nation, well, he almost got $16 million in public money as part of a giant uh, convention center project that ultimately died because the pandemic killed it. Part of that local uprising included Brandon Bryant, who is a pretty well-known whistleblower of the drone program. And so he's been, you know, a lot of different platforms, Democracy Now! That's the image I use to make our local Democrats feel, feel safe, a little more safe space. Um, but <laughs> Mr. Bryant is convinced that after uh, he got point of order, um, since Gwen Jones is a little sensitive to Brandon's intense passion from time to time uh, there was a off-camera scuffle of some kind not a physical scuffle just a verbal exchange but unfortunately mr bryant is convinced that nick chakota was the was the man um i've since talked to someone else who said uh, no that was like a dude i brought from the bar so whoopsie guess that wasn't uh nick chakota but now mr bryant's going to reddit i think he even filed a police report all of this could have been avoided, it really could have, if I was at city council. And I had been at city council that night, sitting there, talking to Mr. Bryan, actually, since we got past some of our um, disagreements about how the, the documentary ultimately depicted him. It wasn't my creative choice. And so I was asked by a female police officer to stand and talk in the hallway with her. And then three officers and private security basically created a nice, effective uh, flesh wall so that I could not re-enter city council. I was told that the petitioner, who was using the courts to do a lot of things that are really uh, upsetting to me, but I can't find a lawyer to defend me in this matter, unfortunately, um, and I've called like six. So um, unfortunately, I had to leave city council, so I couldn't tell Mr. Bryant that wasn't Nick Chakota. And now we have more law enforcement involvement dealing with this bullshit 
um, as more serious things are happening. Uh, so, wow. Like maybe, maybe, maybe slow golf clap here for all of that fun, exciting stuff going down here in Zoomtown. Anyways, I made some points um, on Wednesday at city council since I was able to attend my a a petitioner apparently wasn't interested in the in the Wednesday committee hearing uh not hearings but the Wednesday committee meetings at city council and so I made some comments I made some comments about the fact I chatted with a reporter from the Wall Street Journal briefly then I sent up a follow-up email there's going to be a an article posting next week about homelessness in Missoula but I wanted to emphasize for our city council again that words are not the same thing as like acts of physical violence and images are not the same thing as reality. So I was wearing a t-shirt and the t-shirt has Emilio Estevez holding a gun to his head. This is an image from Repo Man. I explained this image on my t-shirt is not the same thing as me actually standing before you holding a gun to my head. I wanted to make that distinction for them because I think sometimes sitting on what they call the horseshoe, so the sort of half circle, Inquisition-like, um, sitting there just looking at you as you're making public comment. I just want to make sure they understand this like reality distinction because I don't always think they get it, but I wanted them to get it. So in, in addition to wanting them to get it uh, in terms of what's uh, actual risks to public safety out there, Todd Keith Spence, a non-compliant sex offender who's been living in Missoula for years, um, in different illegal encampments, including the mess shack I spent $1,200 to remove from the side of the Clark Fork River, the riverbank right behind Missoula College where our young people go to get educated, right? Um, I moved, removed, with the help of um, some kick-ass volunteers, 2.84 tons of trash. That was on Earth Day of this year and then a few more days afterwards. But I, I went to the Department of Transportation to, to chat with some of their staff. I wasn't able to talk to anyone, but I did see a picture of Todd. So when he was a little bit healthier looking and then after the meth kicked in. So the, the picture is posted as part of an order against Todd so they can uh, effectively arrest him for trespassing. Now, interesting stuff when you talk about trespassing. We've got the man out in the woods um, away from his camp that the Forest Service had called in the sheriff's office because they wanted um, apparently this guy to have guns and a hour-long standoff. Um, who knows? But this guy understood trespassing. You've got to be at the place where you're going to trespass someone, so they have to be there. You have to nicely verbally tell them so they understand because there's nothing visibly posted out there, this, this gentleman was saying. And if there's not visible signage, there's no reasonable expectation that a person understands unless they're told calmly by law enforcement that they're not supposed to be there and then if the person returns then then you can trespass them you get that that's part of the fucking law that the law should understand before they draw guns and create a very dangerous situation for a u.s citizen another act of violence or maybe just an accident or i don't know because the official media hasn't reported on it um, someone fell off the Orange Street Bridge. Apparently, according to the tweaker who was living under the bridge with a few other people, the person was just leaning back and fell off and died. So onto the bike trail, the picture sent to me by a source is the person in a body bag. And then there's a picture of the camp and the woman in the tie-dye shirt that was saying both to me, since I, when I got this picture, I immediately went there and talked to her as well. Uh, she told me the same very emotionless, rehearsed-sounding story. Yeah, he, he was leaning over. He died. Eh, his name is Matthew. 
Um, I also put a little video clip so you can see this area right downtown where all the tourists might like to come. But if the tourists go a little bit too far, like let's say they're going east on Front Street um, and they're walking and they go past Orange Street and they start getting into like dangerous area. Well, that's that's just, you know, tourists are going to do what tourists are going to do. And and we'll see if they get um, stabbed or mugged. But the abandoned parking garage is the area where Lee Nelson was brutally murdered in broad fucking daylight in November of 2020 by a psychopath who came to Missoula from Idaho. And so I bike down this little hill. You can see the parking garage to the right. And then very quickly, I'm to the spot where this apparently young man named Matthew fell off. Accidentally, the chatter is maybe he was thrown off, but... Uh, if there's going to be an investigation, and if a certain detective with the initials G, as in good boy, and B, as in bad boy, um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe we'll see what happens. I, I'm not very confident. Um, one little thing, <clears throat> this is just a little point. So as, as you're thinking about how you might yourself need to de-escalate something, and let's say... Let's say you've signed over all your firearms, not that you would be necessarily open carrying a firearm and, and wanting to escalate a situation when a truck, a big, big fucking truck is um, filled with two douchebags that want to use the size of the truck and their stupid fucking mouths um, to yell at you as you're on a tiny little bike going pretty fast. But again, tiny little bike. So um, what I did in that situation, um, again, I'm trying to emphasize the difference between words and then the potential of real violence happening Um I didn't bring in the law enforcement um, people to save me in this situation. What I did is I took out my phone and I took a picture of the truck. And this picture includes the license plate of the truck. Um, and then when the truck pulled over, like took a right, and I see them pulling over to try and position themselves to come back around and get behind me, well, I, I get off my bike. I take my phone back out and I shoot some more footage in case these motherfuckers want to come back around and show me their stupid fucking faces. Um, so that's what it's like in a escalation zone here in Zoomtown uh, when even just biking leads to situations in which you might not feel the most safe. But, you know, you got to handle things yourself as best you can. And that's why I'm recognizing, oh, it might be time for me to take a break from Zoomtown. I'm trying to understand insects. It seems random, I know. Joshua, this guy that commented online on, on my Facebook page, he's like, random. And uh, part of my, my thought process, I wanted to say, well, I don't know if you've ever dated a spider then. Maybe you haven't. If you had dated a spider, then me trying to understand the insect world might make more sense. Um, the insectarium's not open yet, though. Alas, lots of money has been raised um, to have this beautiful insectarium by the fairgrounds. Today is one of the days... Th um, here in Missoula, the fair is kicking off, so there's going to be a lot of people in this vicinity here in Missoula, but they won't be able to go into the insectarium. They will at the end of September or maybe October. It's very exciting. So I included a little song I made. It's a, it's a great song. I think it's one of the greatest songs about the insect world possibly ever written. Not sung, because my, my singing voice isn't that great, but it's a, it's a great song. And then I have a little picture. I hope it's not too triggering for the, the, the ladies attacked by river otters. And I'm certainly not going to make light of that river otter attack. Anyone in Montana that has actually read the woman's firsthand account, which I linked to in the post, holy shit. It is a terrifying experience they went through. They almost fucking died. Um, this otter or otters were relentless in their attack. And so they were also in the middle of nowhere, and it took a long time for law enforcement to get there. So these people were actually very lucky that no one died. 
Um, and I don't think they did anything to warrant being attacked. So they were in the middle of the river when this shit went down. They weren't sort of like doing the stupid tourist thing, going up to the buffalo and being like, smile for my camera, buffalo. So very uh, intense experience with, with animals and sometimes even with insects. August 8th. We are getting there, people. We're getting there. Um, Trust in the law versus hooded justice. I mentioned having rewatched the Watchmen series put out by HBO, limited series. Damn, it's a good show. It is so, 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 so good. Um, the characters are just amazing. They, they blossom like beautiful narrative flowers. It's funny. It's important, I think, for narratives to be funny if you want to get your message through. And I just, I strongly encourage watching The Watchmen. There's a lot of synchronicities for me. I'm not going to get into all of it, but... Just the idea of vigilantism is something I've been actually focused on for quite some time. I included scenes in the work of fiction back in 2016 when I started writing a book. I'm writing a new book now, which I'm very excited about. Um, but that book included scenes of fiction that then came true in, in some ways. Um, and it kind of unnerved me just a bit. So vigilantism being one of those scenes of violence, I am very uh, aware of... Um, I guess some of the, the ways in which trauma can impact people. And so it's a very timely thing for me to be watching since, you know, I apparently have led a lot of people to be very concerned. So I appreciate people like Tony who make my bang bang safe, making my bang bang safe, maybe in some ways in their minds um, keeps me safer, but it's more their fear that I'm worried about and, and what people's fear, how that fear is now manif manifesting in my life. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Um, I also link to a, a letter that I published at the beginning of this year. I will be getting more in my book, I think, maybe not publicly, but in the book, more into what I've experienced, especially in the past year and a half, but more broadly in the past three years since Sean Stevenson was assaulted inside the POV, where I used to work on January 3rd, 2020, and then euthanized by the Missoula County Sheriff's Office because they were in that room in the hospital in St. Pat's. They removed Sean from life support and his family we're told afterwards, and that's fucking crazy to me. So, um, moving along. Also, I mentioned pandas, fucking pandas. Uh, they're in, in wearing masks in the show, Watchmen. There's a there's some just very interesting ways in which the masks reflect their trauma. So, like for example, Looking Glass is a great character, but uh, his trauma is having this sort of weird sexual experience, uh, which before this sexual experience, pandas are actually mentioned, and he's inside a funhouse with the mirrors when the giant squid attack happens and the mirrors break, and so his mask is a glass-looking mask. And then, um, of course, Hooded Justice is a ends up being a black man, one of the first costumed vigilante guys in this fictional world, and Hooded Justice wears, you know, the hood, essentially, he had put over him by the white cops that wanted to lynch him, and he wears the cutoff noose. So very interesting stuff going on. Um, not going to get into the panda shit because that's just just too messed up. Let's get to August 7th. That's Monday. That's the start of the week. And I started off the week with a post throwing municipal money at bullshit while a gang of urban campers intimidate parks and rec. So this is example of money, uh, where money is going, how I think a lot of that is bullshit. And then some examples of uh, campers kind of acting in a way that like you know defending their territory in a sort of post-apocalyptic Mad Max kind of situation so 
we're getting there, folks. We got the Thunderdome. That, that's the authorized camping site. The nickname for the authorized camping site before it was shut down because it was unsafe and contained drug and human trafficking within the authorized camping site. Uh-huh. Um, it was referred to colloquially, lovingly, I'm sure, as the Thunderdome. I really hope that's in the Wall Street Journal article. If that's in the Wall Street Journal article, I will, I will smile from ear to ear. <laughs> oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. I also mentioned a very kick-ass podcast episode I listened to. You might not think about sort of uh, cartel stuff and geopolitics when you think of the higher side chat since conspiracy-type topics are more sort of the milieu of Greg Carlwood. And Greg is going to be interviewing me someday. Um, I have nothing scheduled. I've been trying to get on his radar. I just know at some point that shit's going to happen, and that will be fun when that happens. But Ed Calderon a Mexican uh, cartel intel guy and cross-border trafficking expert. Um, man, he talks a lot about the current state of the state in Mexico, stuff that's coming into this, this country. Mentions China, how a lot of this uh, fentanyl drug operations just sort of like kicked in overnight in Mexico. It's a fucking war. And people don't seem to understand that here in Missoula, which is sad. Because I think if we don't understand what's actually going on, it doesn't make us safe. It makes us less safe. Knowing more makes us more safe. I also just want to chuckle. No limit soldier. I thought I told you. I used to live Master P back when I was a little white kid in suburbia. So uh, Johnson County, Kansas City. That's the Kansas part of Kansas City, not the more legit urban part, which is on the Missouri side. I was in the the little suburban, you know, safe side where we could drive around in our cars listening to no limit records. Master P. Um, (laughs) If you ever... Uh, if you ever go and catch a uh, a little, there's a zine around town. You can you can go a few places to find copies of this zine. I think in in a, a upcoming edition of that zine, you're gonna see something about mag dump records, safety off, or uh, mag dump records, stop resisting. Now, in light of how we began this this week in review with law enforcement potentially. Um, thinking they were justified in doing a mag dump um well maybe not so funny anymore but you know if you can't do a little gallows humor and chuckle at how crazy shit is then well then you might be in a in a, in a bad crisis so i got a tune coming up to end this end this episode but before we get to the song we got to get to a reading and the reading i've already figured out already already ahead of time i already know what the reading is going to be this week it's going to be john potash so we're going to be looking at his title, Drugs as Weapons Against Us. I'm, I'm going to be looking for some Chinese opium war shit is my, my thinking. So, um, Or maybe some Tupac shit. We'll see what happens. Stay tuned. That'll be coming up. And you got to listen to the tune. It's going to be probably one of the more interesting songs I have ever released. Thank you for all the support. It's keeping me going. I... Uh, I'm ready for the next phase. Stay tuned. Okay, we have arrived at the book reading part of the podcast episode for this week. And I'm going to be reading from John Potash's book called Drugs as Weapons Against Us. The CIA's murderous targeting of SDS, Panthers, Hendricks, Lenin, Cobain, Tupac, and other activists. So as that title indicates, this book is um, taking a a big, serious look at drugs and popular culture, especially as it relates to 
uh, musical artists like Tupac, Cobain, and Hendrix. So it's a very interesting, interesting book. I recommend reading the whole thing. We're just going to be reading from chapter one today, and this is about opium traders. So chapter one, opium traders achieve global predominance. As early as 3400 BC, the Sumerians used the opium poppy, which they called the joy plant, for its euphoric effects. In the politics of heroin, CIA complicity in the global drug trade, University of Wisconsin professor Alfred McCoy explains that most opium and its derivative, heroin, still comes from poppies grown in the northern section of former Sumerian lands in adjoining territories. Today, this includes a narrow 4,500-mile stretch of mountains extending along the southern tier of Asia from Turkey through Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan to India, an area known as the Golden Crescent. That same stretch of mountains that then extends to the world's large, second largest area of poppy cultivation in the Golden Triangle, where Myanmar, formerly Burma, Thailand, and Laos come together adjacent to Vietnam. From as early as 1500 AD, opium and other drugs played a crucial role in the rise of industrialized powers. Professor Carl Trucke of Queens Island University, Australia, provided this summary of the opium trade. Accumulations of wealth created by a succession of historic drug trades have been among the primary foundations of global capitalism and the modern nation-state itself. Indeed, it may be argued that the entire rise of the West from 1500 to 1900 depended on a series of drug trades. Professor Peter Dale Scott of the University of California at Berkeley concurred, and this is his quote, all empires since the Renaissance have been driven by the search for foreign resources, and nearly all, including the British, the French, and the Dutch, used drugs as a cheap way to pay for overseas expansion. Access to an abundance of opium poppies by Western industrialized countries brought centuries of problems to the East, particularly in China. There, in the early 1500s, the Chinese had only used opium medicinally and in oral form. During this time, the Portuguese fleet initiated the smoking of opium in China, discovering that the effects of smoking opium were instantaneous. The Chinese, however, considered the practice barbaric and subversive. In the early 1700s, the Dutch took over trade with China and the islands of Southeast Asia, while popularizing the use of a tobacco pipe for opium smoking. In 1729, the emperor, Yung Cheng, issued an edict prohibiting the smoking of opium and its domestic sale except under license for use as medicine. By 1750, the British East India Company had taken control of several opium-growing regions of India, and by the 1790s had developed a monopoly on the opium trade. China's new emperor, Kia King, then banned opium completely. This failed to stop the British East India Company from increasing their smuggling and sale of opium in China, which grew from 15 tons a year in the early 1700s to 3,000 200 tons a year by 1850. American University professor Clarence Lussane argued that once Britain had developed its empire, it used opium as an important new political tool for conquest. The British, he wrote, used opium to help addict and control the Chinese people en masse, increasing British profits in China and allowing them easier access to China's resources. Statements of high-level Chinese officials supported this argument. In 1836, Mandarin Hutsu Naitsi vice president of the sacrificial court, informed the emperor that opium, originally ranked among the medicines, was now being inhaled. Hitsu called the practice destructive, injurious. And despite its ban in 1799, the foreign barbarian merchants helped it spread throughout the entire empire. 
Mandarin Chun Tzu, a member of the Board of Rights, found that within the Chinese army, a great number of the soldiers were opium smokers, so that although their numerical force was large, there was hardly any force found among them. Chu pro proclaimed that Chinese needed to oppose the covetous and ambitious schemes of the British with their opium sales. By 1839, the British East India Company's shipments of opium to China reached 1,400 tons per year. The Chinese premier tried to outlaw foreign ships from bringing opium into Chinese ports for sale. Chinese officials confiscated 15,000 chests containing 95 tons of opium from foreign merchants, including 10 tons from the American firm Russell & Company. They dissolved the opium in a trench of water with salt and lime. Unwilling to lose the political power opium had given it, Britain attacked China in the First Opium War, which lasted three years until 1842. China then signed a peace treaty, giving Hong Kong to Britain. China kept opium illegal, but stopped confiscations. However, when Chinese officials tried to enforce the prohibition of British opium sales, tensions led to the Second Opium War, from 1856 to 1858. Once more, China lost and had to comply with British demands to legalize the opium trade. In 1865, Scotsman Thomas Sutherland started the Hong Kong-Shanghai Banking Company, later HSBC. Good Lord. A senior Chinese government official had issued a warrant for future HSBC board member Thomas Dent in 1839 to close his opium warehouses. This helped spark the first opium war. Francis Lamond Diplomatique said that HSBC's first wealth came from opium from India and later Yunnan in China. Yunnan is in the Golden Triangle area. The First Opium War forced China to cede Shanghai to Western powers, transforming it from a fishing village to China's largest, most modern city with a network of opium-smoking dens. Professor Alfred McCoy would eventually call Hong Kong's Hong Kong Asia's heroin laboratory, and HSBC would become the world's largest, become the world's second largest bank. By 1900, China had an estimated 13 million opium addicts. Wow. Six years later, 27% of all adult males in China smoked opium. This astounding rate of addiction has never since been equaled. You know, I think America, we can try with fentanyl, can't we, guys? Other Asian countries developed similar public addiction issues when forced to participate in the drug trade by European powers. God, this is so fucked up. Uh, corrupt foreign-supported leaders in these countries may have also been motivated to make money on the side through taxing opium sales. Yeah, why not bring the taxing in? Why not? However, the opium trafficking families of the U.S. and Europe made the most money as they bought most of the 35,000 metric tons of raw opium being processed in 1906 and sold it at a premium once it was processed. This was 85% of the world opium production that year and more than four times as much from any other single source in history. Most of this opium production took place in southern China, adjoining the area considered the Golden Triangle of Opium Production in Laos, Thailand, Burma, now Myanmar, and Vietnam. British rulers appeared to also use opium against British citizens who struggled to better their living conditions. <laughs> Famous British resident Karl Marx mm -hmm, coined the term opiate of the masses about opium abuse and addiction, keeping people politically asleep. The timing of the ill effects of the Industrial Revolution, worker displacement, starvation, and rioting in the early 1800s suggests that British rulers promoted opiates to help quell the masses of poor and struggling workers, many whom joined protests. After a particularly turbulent eight years of rioting and protest in 1819, British Parliament passed the Six Acts, turning Britain into a police state. These acts prevented public meetings, restricted newspapers, sped up the judicial process, and restricted access to firearms. Within 10 years, street patrols of police were introduced. In 1827, the first commercial batches of the opium derivative morphine were produced. 
Opium, di opium distribution for medicinal and recreational use in industrialized European countries led to problems among their own poor and working classes. Professor Lussain cited Karl Marx in Capital, which stated that in 1861, 26% of deaths among English children resulted from their working class parents treating the children's ailments with opiate medicines. As Professor Al McCoy also reported, mass addiction to opium became a significant feature of the late 1800s in England. Wow. Okay, I'm going to take a quick pause. Um, I'm going to pick up and continue reading for just a little bit longer, so stay tuned. All right, picking up where I left off. U.S.-British traffic opium as workers organize. Starting in the 1700s, the British East India Company acquired a number of partners among American families from New England. The opium merchants' power and loyalty extended to their American partners, and the American Anglophiles showed their continued commitment to Britain by becoming part of the reported 15% of Americans who fought for the British as loyalists during the American Revolutionary War. Oh, you assholes. In his book, Pipe Dream Blues, Racism and the War on Drugs, Professor Clarence Lussain argues that British aristocracy and many of America's wealthiest families used alcohol and drugs as weapons, not only in the East, but also in Africa and in the Americas, with New England families dominating the rum trade. Lussain notes that prior to European influence, Africans traditionally drank only palm wine. Other intoxicants were used medicinally and in moderation. European traders introduced rum, tobacco, and opium to Africa for economic gain, swindling African traders when gathering captured slaves and also introduced rum to the Americas to lead a large percentage of Native Americans into dysfunction. Right on, guys, you fucking pieces of shit. The American family smuggling opium into China alongside the British included the prominent Russell family of Connecticut. The Russells intermarried with other rich families, including the Pierpoints, the family that later spawned tycoon Julius Pierpoint, J.P. JP Morgan. <laughs> Over a half dozen of the richest families, including the Cabots, Cushings, Astors, and Perkins, gained huge wealth in the opium trade and went on to attain positions of power in the U.S. In just one single year, 1840, these New Englanders brought 24,000 pounds of opium into the U.S. The Russell family helped found Yale University, and in 1833, one of the Russells founded Yale's elite secret society, Skull and Bones. A member of the Cabot opium trafficking family founded Harvard's Porcelain Club, called the Pork or Pig Club by critics. The Russell Company unabashedly used the Skull and Bones pirate symbol in its international opium shipping. In 1856, a Skull and Bonesman, Daniel Coit Gilman, co-incorporated the Russell Trust Association, the opium trafficking uh, Russell Families Fund, which then started bestowing money to Skull and Bones members. The Russell Trust reportedly granted each Skull and Bonesman 15000 the equivalent the equivalent of $255,000 upon their graduation. In time, many of these bonesmen rose to the ranks of the world of the most powerful people in the world. In 1874, a British chemist turned the opium derivative morphine into heroin. By 1898, the Bayer Company of Germany introduced heroin as a commercial product. Bayer introduced its milder pain reliever, aspirin, one year later. Yeah, you got to put the heroin out there before the aspirin. Smart business decision, you pieces of shit. Um, let's see. Both drugs were mass marketed on a similar scale, with heroin being touted as a non-addictive cure for adult ailments and infant respiratory diseases. Other companies followed suit and mass marketed heroin throughout Europe and America, with the American Medical Association's approval of heroin as a non-addictive morphine substitute. The next 30 years were a time of great political upheaval in the United States. 
Socialist and anarchist newspapers thrived both in the cities, particularly among recent immigrants, and in the rural areas where homegrown leftist activists gained a readership. This widespread radical leftist political activism came on the heels of the American Industrial Revolution, which followed a few decades after Europe's Industrial Revolution. In the European countries, the newly rich industrialists stood in opposition to the old money of the royal families. Columbia University's sociologist Richard Cloward and Francis Fox Piven described how these European industrialists and royal families competed for the workers' allegiance. This gave the workers more leverage to gain concessions, such as better workplace conditions and national health care. Wow, thanks, drugs. Piven and Cloward noted the marked difference between European and American labor history. When the industrialists rose up in the U.S. after the 1860s Civil War, there was no aristocracy um, standing in opposition to them. I don't think I'm saying that word right. Aristocracy. Um, them damn aristocrats. As workers in the factories tried to organize for better wages and conditions, the industrialists initially used violence against them, but soon employed more sophisticated strategies. The opium trafficking families ramped up their importation of drugs by the end of the 1800s. Companies marketed much of the imported opium and its first derivative, morphine, in medicines. But at least a quarter of imported opium was intended for smoking. By 1900, over 1% of the U.S. population was addicted to opium. Addiction to opium, particularly heroin, rose at alarming rates in 1903, in parallel with the rise of worker activism. During this time period, women organized for the right to vote. In the 1870s, police arrested Susan B. Anthony and Sojourner Truth for their efforts in this cause. In 1890, the National American Women's Suffrage Association was created to promote women's voting rights. Many of these activist women also fought for anti-lynching laws and formed groups fighting for better working conditions. By, 1890, by the 1890s and early 1900s, women made up two-thirds to three-quarters of opium addicts. Opium Profiteers by Media Push War Yale University professor David Musto wrote that opiate addiction reached its peak in the early 1900s, rising to a level never since equaled in this country. The opiate addict population nearly doubled the rate of addiction today. It is unknown how many only abused opiates without developing a full-fledged addiction. Abuse alone could generally be enough to fill up users' free time and disincline their political and social activism. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. At the turn of the century, cocaine addiction became almost as widespread as opiate addiction. This appeared to have its genesis in 1886 when, during the early stages of the progressive movement, the Georgia counties of Atlanta and Fulton passed alcohol prohibition legis legislation. In response, a Georgia pharmacist, John Pemberton, developed Coca-Cola, <laughs> a non-alcoholic version of French wine coca. He developed the original formula for Coca-Cola containing 2.5 megagrams of cocaine per 3.3 ounces of fluid. The syrup had 5 ounces of coca leaf per gallon of syrup, an addictive amount of, for those with a susceptibility. This formula was sold as a <laughs> headache cure and stimulant. A wealthy Atlanta pharmacist, Asa Candler, um, bought exclusive rights to the Coca-Cola formula and incorporated Coca-Cola in 1892. Manufacturers sold cocaine in a wide range of patent medicines, tonics, elixirs, and fluid extracts at the time. Asa Candler and his wealthy investors put massive amounts of money into advertising his new drink for sale in popular drugstore fountains all over the U.S. and Canada. It soon became America's most popular drink. By 1902, cocaine-related products provided many ways to access the drug on a daily basis. This led to an estimated 200,000 cocaine addicts in the United States. Between 1900 and 1907, U.S. coca leaf imports tripled. Hundreds of early Hollywood silent films depicted scenes of drug use and trafficking. 
Meanwhile, leftist workers organizing for better work conditions gained help from investigative magazines that exposed corrupt companies. Together, these organizers and writers helped bring the reform-minded President Theodore Roosevelt into office in 1901. Roosevelt, who also founded the Progressive Party in 1912, helped gain the passage of antitrust laws to break up the robber barons' monopolies over certain industries. When these tycoons bought out all their competition in an industry, they could raise prices as high as they liked. High. <laughs> During the Re Roosevelt administration, many laws and regulations were instituted to give the average American a square deal or a chance to make a fair living without getting robbed by the rich. Professor Musto detailed how the progressive movement of the late 1800s and early 1900s brought about federal laws improving the nation's morals and resisting the selfish actions of the rich and powerful. Most pertinently, it led to the prohibition of opium for non-medicinal purposes by 1914 and the more problematic prohibition of alcohol a few years later. In seeming reaction to these progressive political developments, the Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan families bought out all the top investigative magazines, as one would do, that contributed to American political reform. By 1915, J.P. Morgan also bought out the major newspapers. The congressional record revealed that in 1915, J.P. Morgan's, quote, steel, shipbuilding, and powder interests had purchased control of 25 great newspapers to control generally the policy of the daily press of the United States. Control of the media aided the Rockefellers, the J.P. Morgan family, and their fellow intermarried wealthy families. In 1917, they swayed public opinion and influenced the United States to aid England in World War I. While tens of thousands of Americans died after the U.S. entered the war, these wealthy families made huge profits from money lending, steel manufacturing for armaments and oil sales for trucks, tanks, railroads, and airplanes. I am going to end it there. I, uh, I haven't read this book in quite a while. I did read this book um, front to back, and it is one of those that you should read if you want to understand your history. Drugs have done an incredible amount of good for the wealthy um, in establishing their power and control. Drugs have done an incredible amount of damage, it sounds like, from um, the wealthy to the poor across the world. Very, 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 very interesting, compelling book. So thank you, John Potash. John Potash himself was working in social services before he started um, thinking a little bit more deeply about what he was seeing. I also worked in social services, and the problem for the local power structure here is I also use my brain and make connections. Um, not always something that people enjoy having happen when they are part of a corrupt, complicit system of exploitation, but, you know, it's what I feel called to do. So. Um, the song you are about to hear, I don't, I don't necessarily have a title for the song. I think I want to call it Dead Man Switch, um, since the song is going to help hint at things that are going to exist in a post that I will schedule far into the future. I won't say what day, um, but it, it will be in 2024. That post that I am going to schedule is going to publish if something happens to me, and it's got it's going to have. I haven't uh, composed it yet. It's going to have a lot of information that I haven't been able to put out publicly. A lot of that sort of background information, you know, that uh, leads me to think that I really need to get the fuck out of the state because things aren't all that safe for me here. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. So listen up to the song. It's a pretty cool one. Like all my songs, I, I use the ukulele to accompany my not the greatest singing. But you know what? Again, art. It's what I feel called to do. Thank you for tuning in. 
for all the folks out there supporting me behind the scenes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know if I would even be here if it wasn't for that support. So really, really, really do appreciate it. Stay tuned. I'm not done yet. So much more to come, including a little tune. I got me a switch that flips when I expire. Who would you drag down upon your funeral pyre? First to the spider, I document your strands like running to the river of the rough. Rio Grande and who will bless the river the chaplain will of course my brother oh my brother I'll stick in the fort state investigation a case with APS refrigerator broken our secret files the best compartmentalizing I never was that good oh Colorado I can't remember where I stood one of your friends warned you not this wounded man but you ignored her and targeted my hand. Now you want the rider to measure every word. Because it ended badly and you got your feelings hurt. Did you know your former boss told a reporter I was nuts? And then there's pop directors climbing clutch by clutch. Text the chick who fucked your man until her suicide. Don't worry, grab another papst and all her beta guys. So yeah, I gotta switch. You gotta itch to push. Go ahead and test me, then all of us can look. I have seen the pits of hell. What is this black stone? Pull the plug, you fucking shrugged. I can't leave it alone. Sean was a father. Sean, he was a son. If he was me, he wouldn't stop until the job was fucking done. Yeah, he wouldn't stop. Wouldn't stop until the job was done, 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 done. And it's not done yet, no. The job, the job is not done yet, no. The job, the job is not done yet, but if I expire, Better bet the switch goes click. Click.
All right, there you have it. Here's the end of the episode. You've been listening to Zoomcron's Week in Review. I've been your host, Travis William Skinkmatier. Stay tuned. I think I'll be taking this show on the road. We'll see what my recording capacity will be like. A lot of stuff's going to be happening. Um, what won't happen, though, is that post, the Dead Man Switch, it won't post if I make it back safe. So if that happens, all that information that might be uncomfortable for some people to have out there blowing around in the wind, well, it'll stay under wraps for a little bit longer until the book comes out. <laughs>